I hopped out of bed at Baker Street with my pipe and John Wilson. Welcome to the Sussex countryside. Whoa, nothing's happening. This is the cab. Here I am for a bad time. Vanessa seems serious signs. This is also heinous. The butler's up and vanished. Vanessa's running and feeling kind of homesick. She was pressured and nervous. As a Reggie drops the big secret, it's the Musgrave ritual. It's a Musgrave ritual. It's a Musgrave ritual. So put my hands up, measuring trees and the angle of the sun. Counting my steps like, yeah. Pulling up stones like, yeah. Got my hands up, searching for clues, you know, this off the case. Yeah, the party at Musgraves. Yeah, the party at Musgraves. Wow. Wow. I feel like convalescing at Musgraves probably would have fit better. But... Convalescing at Musgraves, that's better. I'll re-record the whole thing. Oh, man. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Mustang Granada, a podcast where I, Mike Noy, fan, but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes series, and it's particularly the... 1980s Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick Granada series have hoodwinked my friend Jackson Eflin into watching them with me and we read the stories and we talk about it. Hi, I'm Jackson. I'm a fan, but me, I'm nowhere near an expert. And now multi-Grammy winning songwriter uh, Yeah, Party at Musgraves. Uh, uh, Sherlock went gold this episode, but I went platinum. <laughs> well, because he got, he found there's a crown in the, so we have a guest this week. Good, good segue. My sister Maggie Noel joins us again as we cover the Musgrave ritual. Maggie, welcome back to A Study in Granada. Thank you. Glad to be here. Most people will remember you from your star-making turn in the Red-Headed League. Yes, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that I quickly abandoned my project to live stream me coming stuff out of the encyclopedia. So anybody who's been looking for that, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're going to be left hanging. It's all right. It's one of the many great lost art pieces of the 20th century. So, <laughs> so Megan, last time you picked uh, the Redheaded League because it was one of the episodes that you liked a lot. And this time, I kind of asked you if you would want to do Musgrave Ritual because it is our dad's favorite story of the Sherlock Holmes canon. And since he's one of the reasons I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan, it seemed appropriate. Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mike and Megan's dad. And our other 11 fans. Um, so why don't we jump right in? All right. So, uh, once again, we have a summary from uh, the ArthurConanDoyle.com website. Let's see how this goes. On the morning following Holmes and Watson's arrival at Sir Reginald Musgrave's mansion, his intelligent, educated, but flighty, but flighty butler, Brunson, is reported missing. The butler's gone. He's gone. He's not in his room. No, no, no one's seen him. Oh, yes, yes. He's gone. He's gone. Sobs <laughs> Rachel, the butler's abandoned fiancé. During the night, Brunson was examining one of his master's family papers, the Musgrave Ritual, when Musgrave caught him in the act and told him he would be dismissed. Having read the ritual, Holmes tries to carry out his instructions to no avail. At dead of night, at dead of night, Rachel gets up unnoticed. Still dressed in her nightshirt, she rushes to the lake, distraught and carrying a bag filled with scraps of metal, which later on is found in the lake's sludge. Uh, so, yeah, we open here with a weirdly ill Sherlock Holmes go- being forced into a vacation at the home of a school chum who he doesn't particularly care for. Yeah, it's really unclear why he's going to this. He could have just not gone. He's Sherlock Holmes. I mean, they established that Mrs. Hudson is cleaning, I guess. Wrong. And it's really pissing off Sherlock Holmes. But it's just this wild, like, not, hey, let's go do this or that. It's, let's go visit that guy you don't like, whose butler you had a really cool conversation with one time, because you're sick, too. You could have, like, stayed with, um, Mycroft or whatever. 
They don't have guest rooms in the Diogenes Club. They hate everyone, remember? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like, being sick is kind of Holmes's, I guess, gimmick for this episode. Because we're in gimmick season. Although it is somewhat in tune with the original story where Watson is trying to make Holmes clean up his shit and Holmes is like, I know how to trick Watson. I'll just tell him a story about a case I was on. I know how to trick Watson. I'll get him to watch the TV show for a podcast instead of just badgering him to watch it. Pretty much. Totally far-fetched. How absurdly simple. Oh, the similar does leave out uh, the opening bit before the titles and all that stuff where uh, Brunton and his lady friend uh, are uh, making sex in the hayloft, which... Uh, I didn't know they could show that on on this show. They were like, it was surprisingly. Uh, what's the word here? Don't don't help Jackson. I, what is the word, Jackson? I I know. Uh, I'll find it. A very recherche bit. Yeah. Speaking of recherche bits, we're at the <laughs> we are here at the beginning, um, treated to three mysteries that have been referenced but have never been written. They include the case of Ambury, the wine merchant, the adventure of the old Russian woman, and the aluminium crutch, along with the Tarleton murders. Mm. Uh, Holmes does also mention the Glorious Scott, which was written but not adapted, and canonically it is the earliest time Holmes used his abilities not as a hobby. Uh, you can find the synopsis online. I was going to give a brief synopsis, but it was long and boring, and I didn't care. So you can look it up if you're very interested in that, or you can go read The Adventure of the Glorious Scott. You're all about pitching that summary. Yep. So, as always, when we have mysteries that are referenced but were never written... I smell a mystery. The classic uh, game we play where we decide what these mysteries were. Jackson, why don't you tell me about the Tarleton murders? Oh, wow. Um, so... Tarleton is, of course, uh, ancient Scottish, and they are about some people who... It's sort of this weird thing where someone got murdered out in the woods, and while looking for that person, the person who went looking for them uh, got murdered. And it was sort of this running series of looking murder, looking murder. And eventually people just stopped going to look in those, those woods, and it was Holmes's idea to just let that stop, because he's like, you know, people keep getting murdered, let's just stop looking for whoever it is. And uh, the murderer got away. Yeah, the best Sherlock Holmes story where Holmes <laughs> didn't solve a murder. He just said, hey, what if we stop trying to solve the murder? Can't win them all. So uh, tell me about the adventure of the old Russian woman, Mike. Yeah, the adventure of the old Russian woman is actually a very interesting story where um, Holmes gets influenza and so naturally flies to Russia on the airplanes they had in the 1880s um, that he invented. And he is mugged, actually. By an old Russian woman oh. at the, I guess, airport, since I'm committing to this bit now. <laughs> and he deduces that this is no ordinary Russian woman. This is actually Princess Anastasia Romanov. Oh my God. Who has disguised herself to escape her pursuers because I'm pretty sure this lines up historically. No, I'm not. But And he helps smoke her out of the country to safety. Oh. I don't think we're going to pick that one. It's okay. Um, we're probably not going to pick one either, so Megan, you got to save us a bit. Uh, Megan, tell us about the singular affair of the aluminium crutch. Oh, well, of course, the single affair of the aluminium crutch is the one that I was hoping you would ask me about. Basically, it, it starts out when the witnesses see someone carrying an aluminium crutch, which I'm definitely going to mispronounce at some point in the synopsis. Mm -hmm. So there's only one guy in the town who's got a crutch, and naturally he's the accused party, but of course Holmes doesn't believe that because we, there wouldn't really be a story if Holmes agreed with the police. So he investigates and determines that the person who was seen hobbling away on the crutch was actually using the crutch on the right side, whereas the suspect is left-handed, left-side dominant, and would have been leaning on 
the crutch on that side and therefore cannot possibly ah. be the murderer. And he, I don't want to spoil it, so I won't say who the actual murderer is, but that's the, the mm. telltale clue. Uh, a quick question for you, Megan. Was this person also dressed as Santa Claus by chance? Uh, no, not just as Santa, but I'm loosely basing it on another Matlock. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a repeated theme in Matlock. Uh, so, I'll, no, I didn't take it from the Santa one specifically, yes. I may or may not have ripped that off from Matlock. Arguably, Matlock ripped off the aluminum crutch. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's how that happened. We did it, gang. <laughs> well, we did something. If it makes you feel any better, if you'd ask me about the wine merchant, I wish just... Actually, yes. Tell us about the, uh, the Vanbury wine merchant and how, uh, how Sherlock Holmes solved that, then, Megan. There's a feud between two wine connoisseurs, one of them, of course, being a wine merchant, who then disappears. <clears throat> and so oh. the Holmes is brought in to try to find this merchant and eventually realizes that the one of the walls in the wine cellar is much newer than all of the the rest of the walls and it turns out that the other merchant who was in the feud has basically incapacitated this guy and then walled him up in his own wine cellar oh nice because of course you know holmes had written an extensive monograph on cement and mortar and aging the aging of it and so that's how he was able to figure out the yeah. aging of brick and mortar yeah or whatever mm. you know they used to to brick up walls back then. While we're also in this part of the story, let's go ahead and touch on Holmes's illness slash just getting really high the whole time he's there. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Holmes is not here for this. He keeps talking about how, like, ah, this place is so drafty and cold. No. And everyone's boring except for the butler. And, like, just takes a guess like a bunch of morphine before dinner and spends the that entire night just laughing hysterically at everything. And it's really weird. Yeah. Is this the first time we've seen Holmes actually, like, being on drugs during an episode? Yes. At least canonically? I think so. We had the vial in Scandal Bohemia, but he wasn't actually on drugs then. And we had him thinking about it in The Dancing Men, but he didn't actually use. Yeah, I think this is the first time um, that we've actually seen him use drugs. And to be honest, at that point, I'm kind of glad because I don't know how much of... <laughs> I could put up with. Yeah, that's fair. Jeremy Brett strikes me as someone who maybe hasn't done a lot of drugs in his real life, and so he's not really sure how to act on them. Much like me, who has also never done that and doesn't know how to pretend to be high. I think we're going to see Jeremy Brett reacting to drugs later in the season as he gets progressively iller, and he mostly just gets very shouty. Mm, okay. Speaking of Castro Macchiato, as you were... Convinced the ritual is the key to both Brunton and Rachel's disappearances, Holmes looks for the oak they mentioned in this strange catechism. As Brunton had already found out, it's the oak which adorns the weather vane. By which the synopsis means that uh, there's, an, there's an old weather vane with an oak on it. That's what they mean about it. In the shape of an oak tree. Yeah. As regards the felled elm... <laughs> <laughs> As regards the felled elm... Uh, sorry. In, in this weird poem, imagine an elm tree which has now been cut down. And they, wow, this is terrible. As regards the felled elm, Musgrave knowing whence it once rose, Holmes can stick a six feet fishing rod in its place. By which the summary means, Holmes uses some math to figure out how tall the elm used to be. And that's, that sound you're not hearing is my copy editor of a sister silently dying in agony. 
Well, sorry, I, I blacked out for a minute, guys. I'm back, though. Sorry. <laughs> when the sun goes over the oak, Watson notices the fishing rod shadow measures nine feet and Musgrave, remember, remember, yeah. and Musgrave, remembering the elm was 64 feet, works out the length of the shadow, whose end indicates the treasure hunt starting point. Hmm. Holmes, Watson, and Musgrave's investigations lead them to a cellar where they find Brunton's scarf tied to a ring fastened to a slab of stone covering a pit. In the depths lies the butler's corpse. Brunton had to suffer the ritual but could not lift the slab alone. So he once more promised Rachel love and happiness to get her help, but in the pit found nothing but rusty metal fragments. When the slab, not properly wedged open, suddenly fell back, Rachel left her deceitful fiancé to his fate, but later plunged into the lake with the bag containing their disappearing loot. Disappointing. Disappointing loot. Yes, thank you. Holmes cleans the scraps of metal, assembles them, and soon his dumbfounded companions can see, taking form again, Charles I's broken crown that his supporters entrusted to the Musgrave ancestor. As far as synopses go, not the worst one this season. Not the worst one, but also very unclear. You know National Treasure? Imagine that, but really, really drab. And instead of, like, a giant wealth of gold, it's just, like, a bag full of rusty crown. And there's just one clue. And there's only one clue. Otherwise... The parallel is exact. (laughs) The parallel is exact, yes. So yeah, the, I guess, somewhat murderer, murderess is uh, the the Scottish lady. Rachel. Is Rachel. uh, Rachel, who's, uh, sorry, Welsh. She has this uh, Welsh temper. Let's talk about Rachel. So we have uh, on the notes, Rachel's Welsh disposition. They mentioned throughout the episode that she has this uh, Welsh blood that makes her passionate. I I didn't know that was a stereotype. (laughs) Basically, everybody's passionate but the English. So it's really more of the English are dispassionate, and everybody else has a normal amount of passion. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I noticed it too. And I, I guess on one hand, I should be glad it wasn't that her temperament wasn't just, you know, part of her natural female condition. Uh, I mean, I apologize <laughs> to the Welsh, so that's not any better. But... <laughs> It's it's fine. If the line comes down between the Welsh and women, Megan's always going to pick women. No, it, just, it was refreshing to have it be something not her natural yeah, female sure. condition. Yeah, and I I am always really into the weird thing where like the different kingdoms of the United Kingdom have like strong feelings about what the other kingdoms are like as a like genetic thing as opposed to just like a cultural thing. What are the other kingdoms in the United Kingdom? Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. I didn't think you'd know. <laughs> yes. Well, sorry, and... sorry. Occupied Wales, occupied Scotland, and the occupied part of Ireland. There we go. That was actually much funnier. <laughs> we also get brain fever as the cause of Rachel's distress, they believe, going into it. Megan, I know you looked into brain fever a little bit. Yes, I, I won't say that I prepared a monograph, but I did look it up, because I, I, ostensibly because I was curious as to what that was, and it turns out that brain, quote-unquote brain fever is quite common in Victorian literature and was considered an actual condition back then, although now it seems like it was probably some form of meningitis or encephalitis. So it wasn't necessarily what fever in the sense we use it to mean high temperature. It was like flushed skin and uh, sensitivity to light and and stuff like that. Um, Now I will say that overexerted women apparently were supposed to be ex- extremely susceptible to brain fever. So in some ways it is sort of a, a backdoor thing into the quote-unquote feminine condition. But Of course. Well, it didn't help that all those concussions she got playing American football led to the encephalitis. And I mean, I mean they didn't even wear helmets back then. 
on that, on that football. <laughs> if she just stayed in the pocket, she wouldn't have gotten sacked so many times. That is the extent of my football. To be fair, <laughs> if Musgrave had drafted a better offensive line, then That's she true. wouldn't have <laughs> had gotten sacked as many times either. If this had been the dungeon ritual, forget about it. Everything would have been great. Jackson, what do you think about football, American football? Um, I have seen Remember the Titans at least once. That's all I got. Oh, question while we're here. Of the various, like, emotionally fraught women that Holmes encounters in his travels, who would be the quarterback of the of the team? Are we drafting a women's league American football team based oh, off man. of the female leads of the Sherlock Holmes Cross series? Yes. Okay. I suggest the uh, solitary cyclist would be. I would agree with that. Probably very, yeah, Violet Hunter. Hunter, yeah, because there's Violet Smith who's in Copper Beaches. Yes, uh, Violet Hunter, or sorry, Violet Smith cannot run, nor can she take the silver. See, I would almost argue Violet Hunter should be a receiver because she could, on that bicycle she could really outpace the defensive line. That's true. <laughs> Wait, she's keeping the bicycle for her footballing. Irene Adler would be like a, so what, another player who could like carry the ball because she would disguise herself as a player for the other team. We, we're going to say yeah. this for a bonus episode where Jackson and I just do play-by-play commentary of the first match of this game. Excellent. But anyway. Oh, um, yeah. And they're also the Granada Irregulars. Yeah, That's their team. That's good. Or the women. Um, so we're, we're goofing, but we might actually do that as a bonus episode. So stay tuned, listeners. You might get two bonus episodes this this season. One of them will be very weird. <laughs> the other will be this episode that we're talking about. I also kind of wanted to talk about Rachel's madness. The way Joanna Kirby did a pretty good job, I think, of like actually looking unhinged. Yeah, she. I I can believe that this is a person who killed or let a guy die. I mean, look, sure he had a role in the hay with Janet Tregalis, but what Rachel doesn't understand was they were on a break. <laughs> I get it, because her name's Rachel. <laughs> I'm quitting this podcast in shame over <clears throat> friends' jokes. Question. So, uh... Are you going to ask me which of <laughs> the female leads of Sherlock Holmes would be which of the friends? Because I have to put my foot down eventually. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, question for the group. We've also learned that the, the butler died because uh, the slab fell on him and Rachel didn't lift it. Do we think it fell on accident, or did she I kill him? I think it's pretty clear, within the, the context of the episode, I think it's pretty clear that the... The wood just fell on its own. And so, I mean, you could argue okay. that she killed him and she she could have gone for help and she didn't and maybe saved him. Like, I don't think he suffocated in the time it would have taken her to get to the house and back with somebody who could get him out. But I don't hmm. think that, at least within what we see in the episode, I don't think she kicked it out or anything like that. Within the story, I don't know. It's hard hmm, to know because sure. we don't actually get to witness it firsthand in the story because it's just Holmes recounting what he decided must have happened. Mm-hmm. Although I guess that's the to some extent that's the episode yeah. two. But we at least get to see an interpretation, a specific interpretation of it there. Speaking of Holmes recounting in the story versus it happening as we're watching it and this, I wanted to talk about what I was calling real-time versus recounting. And I'm interested why they chose... I know the impetus would be like, show, don't tell, and if Holmes is recounting, that's him telling. I mean, we've seen, though, in specifically Dancing Minutes, where we talked about it a lot, we cut two scenes of the story as it's happening, and then we cut back, and I feel like that fills out the 15-minute problem better than what we got. 
was because there's like two three minute scenes back in Baker Street of Watson asking questions, mm-hmm. and also you get you give Edward Hardwick more things to say, which we know he likes. Yeah, he's as hungry for lines as Burke was for food. Gods. So yeah, the original story is so abstracted because it's happening. It's Holmes telling Watson a thing that happened ten plus years ago. So the tension is very much not there. Whereas here we have it happening in real time. And that cr- if that created a potential for tension. The, sh- the show didn't really dig into. Because if you read the story, you know where Bunton is, and you're like, oh, wait, uh, it's only been a few days. He could still be down there, and if he hasn't suffocated, he might just be starving to death. He might still be alive. So so the first time I was watching it, after having read the story, I, I was wondering if the episode was going to have it be a thing that they actually saved Bunton at the end. The episode could have filled out some of his time by having Bunton just be, like, scrabbling, trying to get out the whole time. That might have been, like, it would have been a little bit dark and, and creepy, but it might have also, you know, created more tension. I mean, Brun's body was already kind of creepy. Yeah, I made a note in my no- in my notes because, along with our discussion of um, that other one we watched this season, the Abbey Grange, mm. we talked about how this was, that was like the most gruesome body we'd had so far, and this one also was pretty grim. I mean, it was very pale, kind of emaciated, like rigor mortis had set in him, like reaching up trying to like get out. Yeah, it was. I was surprised at how hard the episode went with that yeah before we started recording you mentioned something about a mysterious third couplet and so we'll put in here the quote of them reading off the actual text of the musgrave ritual whose was it his who is gone who shall have it he who will come where was the sun over the oak where was the shadow under the elm how was it stepped West eight by eight, south seven by seven, west six by six, south five by five, and two by two, and so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of the trust. The ritual as it's written in my copy of the book starts out, Whose was it? His who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. What was the month? The sixth from the first. And then after that, there's a note. And if I go to the end notes, uh, this one, it says, When the story was first published in the Strand, this couplet was missing. Meaning the, what was the month couplet. Yeah, because I don't, I don't remember that in the show. And I'm not sure if where I was reading it, it was in there. It was inserted for the book version in Britain, but omitted from most American book versions. As for the six months from the first, when the ritual was drawn up in the 17th century, the year started on March 25th. This was changed in 1752 when the Gregorian calendar was adopted in England. So the six from the first, in this case, would put this somewhere in like September and not in June as you would. Oh, sure. Interesting. Yeah, but it was, it's definitely omitted from the episode, the third couplet. That is actually pretty important because the sun is going to have different positions over time as the way as the earth like tilts and swivels. So that would be important part of this weird geocaching thing they're doing. <laughs> Victorian geocaching. Oh no. Yeah, uh, Jackson and I are looking at an online version. And it has the sixth from the first, and also the Wikipedia page apparently also has that in there. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of just a crapshoot on whether or not you get an American version or not. It looks like right. For what it's worth, the version I have and that I pretty extensively quoted that in note from is the uh, Penguin Clothbound Classic edition. Mm. Although I think the omission of that uh, 
makes it a little bit more mysterious what's happening. Whereas, like, if you have a date and um, the sun and a shadow, you can pretty quickly guess it's supposed to be a like astronomical chart thing. Without that, it's a little bit more arcane. Yeah. Well, then that also sort of plays into... There's another note in my copy where there's this guy, a professor who wrote an essay uh, basically indicating that mathematically the shadow, the way it's portrayed in the book couldn't have been correct if it was set in March. It would only be possible in June, which is interesting because then if you go by the Gregorian calendar, then you're pretty much right on. Oh, sure. But it couldn't, but it would, that would not have been, when the ritual was drawn up, that would not have been the correct date, the required sun angle. Mm, sure. Speaking of things that Megan has thoughts about, uh, I've been told that you also have some manner of, like, thoughts on Burke and Hardwick? Yes, well, I just, I think it, I, obviously they, I think you touched on the fact that Burke left the show I, on, on his own. He wasn't fired or anything. They didn't set out to replace him. They had to because he was leaving. But there are, I feel like their their takes are very different. Burke is very much the his loyal sheepdog kind of. I feel like Hardwick is much more human. Like he and and Holmes are legitimate adult friends, whereas Burke is when he's with Holmes and participating in these cases more of sort of like a I don't know. I don't want to use the term man-child because that's not... He's much more childlike. Mm. He admires what Holmes is doing in a much more sort of wondrous way. Like a fanboy? Yeah, maybe a little bit. He's just happy to be there, like, following around and and being able to write all this stuff up. And, and not that Hardwick's Watson isn't, you know, happy to be there. But he's much more his own person, I think. He's less of the sidekick personality than Burke's Watson was. That tracks. I disagree that Hardwick and Brett feel more like friends. I feel like in the first two seasons, I actually genuinely thought there was a friendship there between Burke and Holmes. I guess Burke and Holmes, it doesn't matter. Um, This one, we've almost not seen them like... They're almost colleagues and not friends. Okay, that's fair. Mm. That's fair. I don't know, I... The most the, the tenderest friendship scene we've seen it was them drinking bourbon or scotch after um, Abby Grange, where they talk about how disturbed uh, Watson is about Holmes taking on the mantle of judge and executioner, an advocate or whatever. Like when you, you and I talked, and you brought up the idea that Burke is kind of a campier Watson almost, and Hardwick is more yeah. of the straight take. Yeah. Which I can see, after you mentioned that, that we were watching this season, there are a few times where I was like, oh yeah, Burke would have definitely made a meal out of yeah. this. Mm. No pun intended. Um, so speaking of Holmes and Watson, what do we think of Holmes and Watson in this one? It is weird to me that Holmes is like, hey, I'm going to go hang out with my old friend, but I mean, I'm going to sit in my room, you, Watson, can go hang out with my old friend who you presumably have not met. Yeah, it almost it feels very much like a fine, we can go somewhere. I know a guy that I find very boring, but you'll probably like. So we'll go with him, and I can, like, I don't know, do drugs with the butler. You can go grouse hunting. <laughs> yeah, you can go grouse hunting. I forgot the grouse hunting happened. There was kind of a nice scene where Hardwick came to get Holmes for dinner and kind of let himself in and was going to say something and then noticed the drug, like the empty drug vial, and then just kind of quietly left without bringing it up. Mm. 
and then very clearly silently judged Holmes for the rest of the night. Which, to be fair, he was openly mocking his friend at how dumb he was. In his own house, where they were guests. We also haven't really talked about how the episode opens with Holmes having apparently just a trunk full of his old cases and and not letting Watson see them. (laughs) That's because these he wants these done right, Jackson. He doesn't want ah uh, yes doesn't want Watson getting his grubby little mystery paws on them and making them enjoyable or palatable. Um, I don't know. Uh, does anybody have any little monographs? We have in our notes a uh, Holmes crossing the Delaware. Oh yeah. Oh, that was that was me from the. There's this point in the episode where they realize they they have to cross like a, I don't know, a creek or a moat of some port. <laughs> like a great value mode. Yeah, or whatever. A river slash slash some body of water that requires a canoe. Right. And in the episode, as they're crossing to get to this little outbuilding where the ritual has led them, <laughs> Holmes standing at the like the front of the boat, like as sure. the others row him across. And I just it was very it was very George Washington. Anyone who follows us on Twitter at in underscore Granada will have seen this because I'm pretty sure this is the art we're going to use for the coming soon post. Um, and it is very, very good. It's also a good... Um, so Holmes is wearing a blanket most of this episode because he's like sick and cold and doesn't want to be here. But here he's like standing, standing erect with his cane... Uh, thrust into the boat and uh, like looking very like proud and regal, no blanket at all. And it's mm-hmm. a good visual shift in how how he's I guess changed over the episode. So that's nice. I'm really glad you pulled out of that weird innuendo dive you were starting to. Have. <laughs> yeah, it's this is it's such a good shot, and I just I love the fact that it looks like Watson and um, Musgrave are doing all the royals is just standing at the front, like yes, take me to my mystery. <laughs> Oh, I mean, listen, if you were a Sherlock Holmes, wouldn't you want to make other people do the work for you if you could be, you know, just looking cool? I have a little monograph here that the the house is called Hurlstone Estates, mm. which is a great name. Yeah, it's pretty good. And also that I like that this is kind of almost a, a dark twist on the servants are smarter than their masters story, which typically is like a comedy of, oh, look at how useless these rich people are. Us servants are so smart and wily, and we're the ones... Sure, keeping them from a lot of trouble. And this is kind of the reverse of that. It's like, yes, I'm smarter than you. And then I got caught and then I died. Because, you know, all of the intelligence in the world is no match for a Welsh disposition. (laughs) And again, my apologies to the Welsh. Luckily, no one is going to be guessing on this season who has strong feelings about, like, the Welsh anytime soon. So that's not a worry. Well, if no one has anything else, that leads us to Must Clash. With a very clear winner. Yes. I had forgotten about the Inspector until this point. Uh, until I rewatched it, I mean. And boy, how did I ever forget this this man's mustache. Mm-hmm. And, and the angles from which it looks like he only has a half mustache on the one side. Yep. I... I when I was thinking about this episode, forgetting the Inspector existed i was going to put forward rachel because everything about her entire person and demeanor just screams facial hair it would be like an almost an honorary victory because she doesn't have any but nobody really did but there was just something about her that i was like yeah she would totally win must clash and sadly i don't think we're gonna have a lot of women winning must clash this no. uh, this show all right so what do you think jackson um, I am more excited about the facial hair on the inspector. You've never been in the messenger's corner anyway, though. I never have been. 
it's a it's a decent beard, but it's uh, it doesn't like it's not trying to actively escape his face and return to the wild. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, with that explanation, I was gonna agree with you anyway, but that's that's a lot. That's very good. Megan, would you like to vote? I mean, we have already a majority. Oh yeah, no, I I will make it unanimous. I think that the inspector and his partially disappearing mustache is the obvious choice here. All right. Well, with that, the inspector overthrows the messenger (laughs) as the Must Clash Season 3 current champion. Megan, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Oh, well, yeah, I I sidelined my uh, encyclopedia copying project, but I'm thinking about a new project in which I recreate Sherlock Holmes stories and, and food products. So, I mean, the Breadheaded League, uh, oh I mean, the Six Napoleons pretty much writes itself. Of course. But, uh, so, yeah, be on, the, be on the lookout for that at some future. What would you call that show? I have an idea, if you'll okay. allow me. Yes, go for it. Uh, the Baker's Treat? Yes, there you go. Two, yeah, 221B Baker's Street is the current right. working title of that. Keep an eye out on all the podcast feeds for that new hit show 221B Baker's Treat. Oh, good, yes. That's definitely what I meant. I'm a part of Gratuitous Pausing. We are currently wrapping up our sports bracket. I think we're probably into uh, their participation trophy, so look out for A Knight's Tale versus Speed Racer. Um, and I also do another show called The Equalizers for myself and my friend Madison Jones take movies that or either too good and they don't deserve a sequel, or they're too bad and they don't also deserve one. That's why I've done this enough. You know about Equalizers. We're still on a hiatus as we're recording this, um, but we should be back hopefully within the next couple weeks. So we'll see. Yep. Next time, we're joined by special guests Jesse Cooper and Maya Franklin to see if Jackson Eflin can find Neville St. Clair in The Man with the Twisted Lip. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan. It was great to have you as always. Thanks again for having me back. We're rare to meet thy go.